take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're reading verses 19 through 21. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in steel. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in steel. For where your treasure is there, your hearts will be also. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the opportunity we have to look into your word. Lord, I pray you help us to understand what, what it is you have for us. Lord, I pray you help us to be honest in this topic that sometimes is hard for us to be honest about. Lord, I pray you help us to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ impacts even, uh, even topics that we encounter on a daily basis. Lord, I pray you help us to know you better today. Lord, thank you for the opportunity I have to preach. And Lord, I pray that you will guide my words. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to talk on the subject of money. Now as soon as I say that, some of you go, Ugh, I don't want to hear this. Money is the one thing no one wants to talk about. It's the, it's the big elephant in the room. Now, everyone deals with money every single day, but no one really wants to talk about it. People like to talk about money when they're making a lot of it, or they like to complain when they don't think they're making enough. But when we talk about giving money away, when we talk about sacrificing for God, suddenly a topic becomes taboo. Don't talk about it. Money becomes something very uncomfortable to talk, to talk about. I want to start by saying this because sometimes um, maybe you uh, think that, I've had people say this, you know, you, you were talking to me today, weren't you? No. Um, as pastor, I have no idea what people in this church give. And I want you to understand that because if you think I'm talking to you today, it's probably the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So keep that in mind. Money is a very touchy subject. Why is the topic of giving and uh, our finances, such a sensitive idea. I believe that there's two reasons why I believe it's a sensitive topic. First of all, I believe because there's a perception that church, that churches as a whole, and, and specifically pastors who stand behind pulpits, have in some ways abused the issue of money. We know there are examples of people who have, uh, pastors who have, who have extorted people for money, and, and so because of that, that becomes a topic that they don't want to talk about. Well, please, I want you to know that's not the heart of this church, and it is definitely not the heart of this pastor. My desire is that you have a right relationship with God, uh, and your giving is not something that I am personally trying to uh, ask you to give more so I benefit from. I think the second reason why talking about money is such a hard thing for many people is because... Honestly, statistically speaking, most of us here are not submitting enough to Jesus in the area of our finances. Today, the church as a whole, I don't mean just First Baptist Church, I mean the church as a whole is not really great at giving. Uh, tithers are, are it's, it's estimated that tithers make up about 10% of the church, 
What do I mean by that? I mean, people that give at least 10% of their income only make up 10% of the church. Now, I would like to think that we have a higher percentage than that. Like I said, I don't know. But um, that, but that is across the board in our nation that tithers are a very small portion of the church. Christians as a whole, it is average, give about 2.5% of their income. That's across the board, 2.5%. Now, that's, that's an interesting stat, but uh, it gets even worse when you understand this, that during the Great Depression, it was estimated that Christians gave close to 5% of their income. So at a time when we didn't have it as a nation, we were giving more than we are today. Now, maybe numbers like that make you feel guilty, which is really not the point. The larger point is what would happen, what would really take place, not just in this church, but in churches around our country, what would take place if, if believers actually gave the way God called them to give? What would actually happen if we gave just even, really honestly, the minimum amount, and that is 10%? What would happen? It is estimated that churches would receive an additional, as a whole, across our nation, $165 billion if Christians gave as God called them to. Now, what can we do with $165 billion as a nation? Let me just give you a few stats. It's estimated that $25 billion could relieve global hunger today. $25 billion. $12 billion could eliminate uh, illiteracy in the next five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fund all the mission work all around the world. $1 billion. If you, if you did the math real quick, what that would leave is about still $100 billion for us to, to put into ministries in our nation and around the world. Now, as I said, I don't know statistically where our church falls, but I believe that as, as churches around the world, and I believe today, probably in this church as well, that we do not give the way God called us to give. So that's why this is an uncomfortable topic. This is, this is why many people do not want to hear that. But here's the thing I want you to understand. Jesus talked about money a lot. In fact, uh, it, it is said that Jesus talked about money more than any other topic in Scripture. It is estimated that 15% of, of Jesus' teaching in Scripture is on the topic of money. That's more than faith, prayer, heaven, hell combined. So why did Jesus talk so much about money? Why was that topic something that Jesus discussed so much more than any other topic? That's what I want to look at this morning. Why is the area of money and how we spend our money so important to our Lord? A couple things I want to look at. First of all, our view of money indicates the condition of our hearts. Our view of money indicates the condition of our heart. Look at the passage we read earlier, just the very end of it. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus taught that money was the doorway through which we enter into all manner of idolatry. As we swung open uh, that idea of money, we walked through it, we grabbed hold of all things that rob our heart's attention. Paul says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. And Jesus knew that when we walked through the door of money, when we acquired money, we, were, we would begin to exchange the glory of God for things that don't eternally satisfy. 
And as a result of this, Jesus believed and taught that the way you spent your money was the single most reliable source on truly who owns your hearts. The way you save, the way you give, the way you spend is an indicator of who owns your hearts. I believe it's not just in that. I think even in the business world, we understand that, that how important it is. You talk about a company, and, and many of you are, are businessmen, and you deal with companies all the time. And, and a company has many facets to it. Maybe it has an external facet, and it has an internal components, and, and it has staff, and it has people. But what does the company look at when they want to know their true health? What is their foundational indicator of how they're doing? It's what, the bottom line. I think Jesus was saying the exact same thing. When we look at the bottom line, the foundational indicator, not, not the most important thing, I want you to understand that, but the foundational indicator of a person's heart health, see the top of the money. There's all these other indicators that we decide on a person's heart health, and yet Jesus never really addressed these things as much as he did the top of the money. We, he never looked at people's church attendance or or the volume of, of how much theology they knew to determine their hearts. He never looked at the individual and said, oh, man, you pray two hours a day, it's obvious that you love God. Now, I want you to understand, those things are important, those things are valuable. Yet, however, over and over again, when we look at Jesus and how he responded with people, he, and he understood that what, what really reveals the value of someone's heart is, is how they uh, handle their, their money. We see that in this verse, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm going to look at two aspects of this. First of all, the treasure you pursue reveals where your heart will go. That word heart in that passage is the sense of our, our affections, what you truly and deeply love. If you want to know your true affections, look where your treasure is. Look where you spend your money. Look what you value. Look what you place an importance on. If you want to know the affection of man's heart, look where he spends his income. If, you place, if he's placing his treasure first and foremost into the kingdom of God, then his affections will reside in the kingdom of God. But if he places them first and foremost in his own kingdom, and that's where he's going to place his affection and his money. If that's true, then where you are spending your money is a prime indicator of, your, of the ownership of I believe Jesus knew the, the death grip that money has, and, and because of that, he was teaching it's not how much, just how much you serve God that indicates your love for him. It's not just how much you read the word of God. Those are important again, but it's, it's an indicator of that is, is your money. The second thing we want to notice is that the tightness of your grip on money reveals the sincerity of your love for God. This is where it gets a little difficult. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. And we'll look at a second passage. Luke chapter 18. How, how tightly do you hold on to your money? We're going to look at two stories that, that, that talk about this idea on, on two different sides of this, of this topic. Look at Matthew chapter 18 and look at verse 18 there, it says, and, and, and a ruler, we call him the rich young ruler, uh, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now you've heard many messages preached on this, on this story, on the story of uh, the rich young ruler. 
Now, I've heard this story my whole life, and there's many times where I just would listen to this story, and I would say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Why? Because I'm not rich. And I'm sure 99% of you would say that you're not rich as well, but the, the truth is you are. Not just, you know, yeah, you hear that before, yeah, I'm rich in, in spiritual wealth. And that, that is true, but that's not even what I'm talking about. If you understand, if you live in the United States, if you have a roof over your head, if you eat three meals a day, if you have a car or some form of transportation, if you have indoor plumbing, then do you, do you realize that you are at the top 1% of the richest people in the world? Just because you have all that. If you are here today, you are a rich guy. Jesus says it's really hard for rich people to understand this. So this man, this rich guy, this, this ruler who had lots of money, we don't know how much, but we know he had lots of money, he comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now imagine for a moment that this guy came to you instead of Jesus. What would you say? What would you say if this guy came to you and said, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I think, I think probably most of us, the majority of us, would grab the Bible, we would turn to some passage in Scripture, maybe, maybe we'd turn to John, where, where, where God says, Jesus says, you know, God so loved the world that he gives only to God's Son, that whoever believes, maybe we'd turn there and talk about having everlasting life, or maybe we'd turn to Romans and we'd go through the passages that talk about our depravity because of sin, and how because of sin we are completely lost. And we do not have Christ, and, and yet God's grace sent his Son to die for us, and all we have to do is believe in faith in Jesus Christ, and we'll have eternal life. Many of us would probably turn there, but that is not what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus' response to this guy seems to be so drastically different than anything that any of us would have said. And he didn't, he didn't say, hey, pray this little prayer and you'll be okay. He didn't say, if you do this, you'll be okay. He begins to talk to him. He doesn't say to him, hey, let's go down to the Jordan River and I'll baptize you and you'll be okay. He doesn't do any of that. Look what Jesus says in this passage. In verse 19, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, the rich and ruler, said all of these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. He was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. See, here's what Jesus said. And in essence, Jesus stopped and said this to the rich young man. Here's the thing. There's something on your, the throne of your heart today and it's not me. There's something ruling your life today, and it is not me. It's your money. Jesus is not saying to us that every single person here needs to be able to say, hey, I'm going to give up all of my wealth for God. Maybe he does call some to do that. Maybe he's called you to do that. But that is not what Jesus is necessarily asking. What Jesus is saying to this rich young man is, are you willing to let go of your money? And that's why I said the tightness of your grip reveals the sincerity of your love for God. Because so much of us, we walk around and go, no, this is mine. And God says, you've got to let go. 
If you don't let go, then you're revealing that you love your money more than you love me. And we shake our head at the rich young man. But the horrible thing is, is I think many of us think the same way. Many of us make the same decision every time we get our paycheck. I got this bill to pay. And I got this to do. And I have this entertainment choice I want to make. And I have this bill for my son. And I have this uh, medical bill I got to pay for. And God says, wait a second. Where do I fit? Where do I fit? Now compare this to the story we see in Luke chapter 19. If you're there in Luke 18, just look over to Luke 19. The story that we see in Luke chapter 19 of a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you, you know the story of Zacchaeus if you grew up in a church. Zacchaeus, what does the song say? He was a wee little man. Okay, He was just a, a short guy, and, and he was a tax collector. What does that mean? That means he was a guy who swindled people out of their money. And he used the, the power of the Roman government to do it. And he became, because of his swindling, because of his stealing, he became a very wealthy man. And he had anything he wanted at his disposal. And, and yet he was still empty. And one day he hears Jesus Christ is coming through. And he's heard about this Jesus, but he doesn't know much about him. So he wants to go and see Jesus. And, and he comes and the crowd's already assembled. And Jesus is walking through and he can't see. He's short and he can't see over the crowd. And so he, he says, I've got to see Jesus. And so the Bible tells us he climbs up a tree and, he, and he's up in the tree looking for Jesus. And Jesus walks by and Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house today. Zacchaeus comes down. And after they spend time together at his house, something interesting happens as they're sitting across the table from each other. Zacchaeus begins to fall in love with Jesus. He begins to have a, a, a passion for this guy talking to him. And he begins to change. He's not the same guy he used to be. And, and his change doesn't happen uh, ex externally only. It begins to happen from his heart. And what you, I find interesting is nowhere in this passage does Jesus say to him, Zacchaeus, like he did to the rich young man. No longer does he say, give up everything you have. No, he doesn't even once mention money. Look at what we see in, in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 19 and look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Not once did Jesus say to him, Zacchaeus, you need to give up your money. But here's the thing, we're talking about the tightness of your grip. And the rich young man, he held on tight. He said, I'm not letting go. Zacchaeus said, God, here it is. I don't care anymore. Because he had fallen in love with Jesus so much that his money didn't matter. And on his own, he came up with this idea. He said, everything that I have, I'm going to take half of it and give to the poor. This man must have been very wealthy. And then he said, all the people I have defrauded. You know how many that was? Quite a bit. All the people that I have defrauded, I am going to go back, and I'm not just going to repay their debts. I'm going to give them four times. Why? Because he had such a love for God. And now Jesus responds in an interesting way. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. 
Now it's interesting. Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and he says to him, Zacchaeus, I want you to understand something. After he just said, I'm going to give all this money away, he looks at him and he says this, Today, Zacchaeus, salvation came to this house. Now why did salvation come to Zacchaeus? Was it because he did a work of salvation? Was it because he did this action of giving away his money? No, that's not what it was. It was because giving away his money was an indicator of what was already in his heart. He had already released his grip. And Jesus knew it. And Jesus said, salvation's come to your house, not because of the action he just performed, but because of the attitude that was in his heart. See, God is calling each and every one of us to have a view of money that is God-like. That it is not something that uh, we have, and it's mine, and it's mine, and i got to hang on to. No, it's something that we say to God, God, this is yours. And we need to begin to have a view of money that indicates that our heart is following God. But secondly, we need to develop a pattern of giving that pleases God. Now, when you begin to talk about, about the idea of money, there are typically three responses. There are, there are a handful of people that God has already built within your hearts a God-sized vision for finances. And so you have already, you have already developed this pattern of giving graciously. There's a second group of people, and those are people who, who, who uh, respond anywhere from complete skepticism to complete disapproval. You're, you're sitting there going, I don't, I don't agree with anything the pastor's saying. You have that right. There's a third group that understands that God is, is calling them to give to him for his name, for his glory, for his kingdom, but they keep asking themselves the same question. How much do I get to God? And maybe you're in that third group today, you're sitting there and you're saying, how, how much is it that I'm supposed to give? I mean, I've heard the question before, people come to me and they'll say, hey, the Bible talks about a tithe, that's 10%. Now, is that 10% from my net or from my gross? Or, or how does that play in? What, is, what does God want me to give? Well, the Old Testament asked that question, but it answered it as well. And it seemed to be a straightforward answer, and that was the tithe. In the Old Testament, we see the tithe mentioned numerous times. What was the tithe? The tithe is, that word tithe means 10%. And, and God told the people of Israel, I want you to give 10%. However, here's the thing, if you enter into the New Testament uh, and the teachings of Jesus, they don't uh, answer that question as precisely as the Old Testament does. Now, Jesus did affirm the tithe. We see when he's talking about the Pharisees, he said the Pharisees gave 10%. He was affirming that that was something that was legitimate from the law. But then, he seems to move past it. He seems to commend those things that are greater. I actually believe as you begin studying the scripture, what you see is something completely different. You, you actually see a different question being asked. Not, how much should I give to God? But you begin to ask the question, how much do I dare keep for myself? We look at examples of men and women who have lived, who, who lived with that motto. It's, it's amazing. I was reading uh, recently about J.C. Penney. Obviously, the founder of J.C. Penney. It is, it is said that during his lifetime, he gave away 90% of his wealth. He lived on 
Or maybe you've heard the stories of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa lived in such a way where, where she gave away everything. Being I think of someone more, more modern, I, I was reading this week about um, Pastor John Piper. Some of you may have uh, heard of him. He's written many books. He, he pastored the Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota for many years. And, and John Piper uh, wrote, as I said, many books, many uh, popular books. And he could have been, been a multi-millionaire. But he gave away all the profits of his books. He spoke around the world and around the country. And every time he goes somewhere, they give him an honorarium. And he gives away every honorarium. None of it does he keep for himself. In fact, he pastored a very large church, and I recently heard that his salary was really kind of low for a guy who pastored a church the size he did. He determined many years ago that he was going to live in a way where he sacrificed and gave up. And so even uh, his house, he lived in an area of Minneapolis that wasn't a rich or affluent area at all. Because he wanted to serve. Now, when you hold up your question about how much, you know, where do I take my 10% from, doesn't seem a whole lot like those examples, nor does it seem a whole lot like what Jesus is teaching. Remember the story of the widow? This religious man comes and he gives this 10%, this, this tithe of this massive amount of wealth that he has, and he makes a big show of it, and then this widow comes in and she places her last two coins into the offering. And Jesus said she has given more because she has given of all that she has. And he commends her. So how do we develop a pattern of giving that pleases God? How do we do that? Well, look at three areas. First of all, we need to be praying honestly and sincerely about money. When we look at the, the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, it says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in Heaven, we need to understand that when we pray to God, whether uh, it's about finances or any other topic, we understand that when we pray to God, we are praying to our Heavenly Father. He says, pray, hallowed be thy name. In other words, this means uh, my prayer is that God's name is first, that he is exalted in everything, not just in the world around me, but he's exalted in my life, that his name should be exalted in my business, in my family, in my church. And he goes on, he says, pray, your kingdom come. Ask for, for God's kingdom to show up in power in my life, in my family, in my marriage, in my business, in everything that I do, that God's kingdom is revealed. Pray for his will be done. This means that I don't want to do what I want, but I want to do what God wants me to do. I think almost everyone in this room uh, could pray this with sincerity, with honesty, with integrity. Most of us want God's name to be made first. Most of us want uh, our name to be made second. Most of us want his kingdom to come. Most of us want to live our lives in the way that he asks us to. But even the most devoted, I think, would have a difficult time praying in honesty the next line. Because what does the next line say? Most of you already knew it. Give us this day our daily bread. See, I think oftentimes we fly over that and we think, yes, but... Ask yourself for a moment, what was Jesus saying here? All of a sudden, we have trouble praying this with honesty. And what we're asking God is this. Is we're asking God, give me, God, only what I need for today. That's difficult to pray and actually mean it, isn't it? 
See, we live in an affluent country where we've had, to, we've had to change the Lord's Prayer. We're no longer we ask God to provide just for today, but now we thank God for the abundance of what he's already given us. And that's not wrong for us to thank God for our abundance. But we, we come to God with thanksgiving, but think about what we're praying and what God is asking us to pray in this passage. It's one thing to be thanking God for us, for giving to us an abundance. Oh man, God, you have provided over and over and over again. But it's another thing, almost uh, impossible thing to, uh, to pray, God, I'm asking you to give me only what I need today. So how do we pray that, to be honest? Is Jesus asking us to pray, give uh, me, uh, help me to give so much away that I'm forced to depend on you? Is that even possible? Whether you make 15 million a year or 15,000 a year, what would it look like to be such a radical giver that you find yourself asking God to provide for your daily needs? I am not up here to say that you have to give away all of your wealth and so that you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. What I am saying is that should be our attitude. And yet what happens is, is we sit down and we think, well, I can't what God is asking us is that we give so much, so much, that we have to depend on Him. Do we do that? Secondly, we are to store up eternal treasures. Look at the passage that we read at the very beginning. Jesus teaches them, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What does that mean? How can we please Jesus in living in this area? What does he really want from us? Consider the words where moth and rust destroy. The only way moth and rust could ever destroy your treasures is if it's just sitting there doing nothing. But if our treasure is on the move, then moths won't be able to destroy and it won't get rusty. Could it be that Jesus is not necessarily preaching against becoming wealthy, but rather he's preaching against our wealth doing nothing for the cause of Christ. If you were to visit Israel, in Israel there's a place called Masada. Uh, that is um, a place where King Herod's palace was. It's uh, a really unique place, and it's, it's a monstrosity. It's massive. The thing is huge. And, and, and Herod actually built this. Originally he built this palace for himself. So he would have a place to go, and, uh, and in it he put storehouses, and, and he filled them with food. Well, when, when Masada was discovered about 2,000 years ago, and uh, uh, excuse me, when it was discovered, they realized that 2,000 years ago, when it was built, Herod filled it with food. In fact, they said there was so much food in there that it could feed 1,000 people for five years. It's a lot of food. What's crazy about that is during the time when Herod built Masada, and he was putting all that food in there, the kingdom of Israel was suffering greatly, and there was people starving to death. But he was so intent on storing up, and obviously that food was destroyed. And it wasn't even consumed, and yet the people of Israel desperately needed it. Maybe we're, we probably shouldn't just sit on mountains of treasure, storing for ourselves wealth while there are people in our world that could use it. 
Now there's two ways we can interpret this passage. Maybe this passage is telling us there that Jesus is teaching that we can't save our money. Or maybe what he's saying is he's desiring us to be such extravagant givers that we give away so much. I believe it's the second. There's enough places in other parts of Scripture where Jesus and other writers of Scripture talk about that we're to be wise people. We are to be wise stewards. We save our money and, and we plan and we are meticulous in that way. But uh, And so I believe it's that second part that what God is, is requiring us here is that we're extravagant distributors of wealth. That we are people that are constantly giving up of our wealth for the good of others. It's not that we can't become wealthy. We need to distribute it. The question is not how much do we give to God, but rather how much do we dare keep for ourselves. Then we come to the last point, and this, this reveals the motivation. Why? Why does God want us to live in such a way, or, or, or why, what, what motivates us to live in a way where we give up so much of ourselves? And I think it's because the third thing is we need to give out of an overflow of blessing. Why did Jesus ask so much of us? See, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, as you read the Old Testament, you will see that the Jews were commanded to give so that they would be blessed. The Jews were taught, if you give to God in such a way that, that God will bless you. Now, I believe that 99% of, of sermons today on money, that's where it ends. That, that if you give God to God, God will bless you. You've probably heard many messages on that. But the New Testament tells us something different. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. In Malachi chapter 3, where God is talking to the people of Israel, he says this, bring the full tithe in the storehouse. So he talked about that tithe. He says that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. What is, Jesus, what is God saying in this passage? He's saying this. He's saying, bring in your offerings, and in, by bringing in your offerings, you test me, and then you will see that I will bless you. There, there's that idea that we want to have, that when we do this, God will bless us in, in the same amount. But when we look in the New Testament, what we will see is something different. In Ephesians chapter 3, it says, Blessed be the God our Father uh, uh, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. See, when we begin to look at the New Testament, what we'll see is this. We don't give to be blessed. We give because we're already blessed. You see the difference? I hope you do. You say, well, how are we blessed? This message falls in a series that I've been doing for a few months on the gospel and the impact of the gospel. The, the fact that Jesus Christ died for us and, and that he rose again to give us eternal life should impact so many other areas of life. And if you haven't caught that already, then I want to look at a few verses as we close. First of all, look at Romans chapter 7. Look what it says there. For I delight, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I want to do the law of God, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What Paul is saying there is that my desire is to follow God. My desire is to do the right thing, but he goes, there's inside of me this battle going on with my flesh that causes me to do the wrong thing. Notice what he says there in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Paul came to this conclusion. He said, I am a wicked, 
wicked man, and there's no escape from that. He says there, who will deliver me from this body of death? He goes on next and says, thanks be to God, who through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my heart, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says there, I continue on, but thanks be to God, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, I no longer have to serve my flesh, but now I can serve God. And then look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing thought? That you and I, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you stand today without any condemnation. The reality is, is on your account is a whole list of crimes that you have committed. Every time you have lied, every time you have cheated, every time you have said a gossiping word, every time you have had a nasty attitude, every time you have lashed out in, in ungodly anger, any time you have done any of those things, there's an account of all your sins. And as Paul said, oh man, I am such a wretched man. And there is no escape from that. But Jesus Christ came, and because Jesus Christ came and died for you, and if you place your faith in him, no longer are you condemned. You see, I ain't been blessed. Let's look at another passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. You are, you are following the course of this world. And what is the course of this world? It's following, as it goes on and says, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And if you continue on, it says, among whom we have also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. In other words, we do what we want to do. And because of that, by nature, we are children of wrath, like in the rest of mankind. In other words, we are doomed to face the wrath of God. Because we live that way, one day God says every man will be judged. And that judgment will be horrific. But then notice what it says next. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive. Isn't that a blessing? You, are, you, are, you had no pulse spiritually. You had, you had no breath spiritually. You had nothing. There's, there's no good work you could do that would change that. There is no uh, religion you could follow. There is no church that would save you. All the only thing that would do it is, is the richness of the mercy of God. And because of that, you stand blessed. But that's not, that's not all there is. We look in Romans, and, and we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, uh, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is reminding us in this passage, it's not just that God loved us enough to save us, it's not just that God loves us enough to give us mercy and grace, but he loves us completely. And nothing you will do will ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing. You can dive back into your sins, and you know what? God's still going to love you. He's going to be disappointed in you. It's going to affect your relationship with him, but he's still going to love you. No matter where you go, he's still going to love you. Isn't that a blessing? 
There's so many people in this world think that no one loves them or that they are not loved or, or that they don't have enough people around them that care about them. And what God is telling us is this, is no matter what happens, no matter who rejects you, no matter who turns their back on you, I will never do that because I love you. Let's look at one more passage. James, James says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What he's telling us in this passage is every good possible thing you have ever had in your life came from God. He has blessed you over and over and over again. So what we're looking at and what Jesus is saying through as we talk about the area of money is he has already given you everything. So the question is, is how much do you think you should hold back from him? See, when we ask the question that way, the question of should I give out of my net or my gross becomes pretty silly, doesn't it? The question is, Why shouldn't I give more? How much is God asking you to do for him? Now maybe you're here today and you cannot, you say, uh, I, I cannot sacrifice much more. Pray. God, how much do you want me to give? And I want to say this, because I, I, I don't want you to think, again, I said this at the beginning, I don't want you to think this is just about filling the, the coffers of the church. I want you to understand that I'm not just saying give to the church. I think as the people of God, we can give to so many different other things and, and for the cause of God. So I challenge you, give. Find ways, if you're not already doing that, find ways to give more. Find ways to give out of the blessings that God has given to you. And I think that when we do that, we will, we will realize that we have let go of the grip of our stuff. And the gospel has impacted us in such a way that we say, God, it's yours. Thank you for letting me use it. Now I want to give it back to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the teaching of your word. And I just pray that you will continue to work in our lives and that you will continue to change us, mold us to be more like Christ. Lord, sometimes it's easy for us to give our, our time. It's, it's easy for us to give some of our talents, but God, this is an area that really sometimes hurts us. Lord, I pray that you help us have the right attitude about our money. We see in Scripture that Jesus spoke on this numerous times. It was a topic that he understood was one that captivates us as humans. It's one that, that holds a grip on us so tightly. And what you are asking us to do is to let go of that grip. And Lord, I pray that you will help each individual here today to do that. God, and I also know that there's a possibility there's some in here today that have not been captivated by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will convict their hearts and help them to see 
that they need you. And I pray to work in God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.